Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team and on a beautiful night here at the coliseum the lights have taken full effect welcome to taking effect an oakland a's podcast with ken korak now with an inside look at the a's here's ken well welcome to our first taking effect podcast from here in the cactus league and for our first show we thought it would be a good idea to Take an inside look at the state of the A's with general manager David Forrest. Now, David grew up in Southern California, followed the Dodgers closely as a kid, and for his college days, he moved east to Boston, where he played shortstop and then would eventually graduate with a degree in sociology from Harvard. David spent two years playing in the minor leagues in independent ball, and then after realizing that his chances of reaching the big leagues as a player would be a long shot, he wanted to stay in the game and pursued front office work on the baseball side of things. Now that was 17 seasons ago when he was hired by the A's, and as David eventually moved up the ranks to the position of assistant GM under Billy Bean, he and the rest of the organization enjoyed the fruits of their work in the form of eight postseason appearances in the last 16 seasons. Last October, David was promoted to the position of general manager, and this came certainly at a time in which the A's were looking to turn things around after a tough 2015 campaign. And so as we begin our podcasting here in the Cactus League, we sat down with David Forrest in his office at Hohokam Park. All right, we're down in Mesa. We're with David Forrest. And David, first of all, congrats on the promotion and becoming the A's GM. And I was thinking about you in, in your 17th season with the athletics and all the time you spent with Billy Bean. Um, and that's a lot of time to work with someone. What's been the most important thing about the dynamic that exists in the relationship between Billy and you? Well, first of all, thank you, Ken. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, I always tell people from the day I walked in the door uh, as a low-level baseball operations assistant, Billy involved me and included me in every conversation. And one of the, the most fortunate things about having gotten into baseball with the A's was that it was such a small group. When I, when I got here, it was Billy and Paul doing everything, Paul DePodesta. And I came in as a third person, and immediately I sat in on free agent negotiations. I sat in on trade conversations with other clubs. When we went down to meet uh, with the manager and the coaches, Art Howe at the time, I was involved in that. And as, as a 23-year-old who had just come off the field and didn't know anything about how the, the, you know, the inner workings of a front office 
went, it was a great indoctrination, and that has continued up until this day. I mean, Billy always included me. It was always been a partnership uh, in decision-making and, and everything we do on the field. Yeah, you know, and I think the front office has grown, of course, since then, and I mentioned 17 years for you, and then I look around going down to Fitch Park where the A's train at the Lou Wolf training uh, complex, and there are people like Keith Lippman who's been here for like th over three decades, <laughs> and there are a lot of people in this office um, Eric Cabot has been here a long time, Danny Feinstein, Billy Owens, I think 18 or 19 years. When you have that kind of continuity, does that allow an organization to maybe crystallize its philosophy? I think it does, yeah. And, and those people you mentioned are, are frankly part of the reason that I've wanted to stay here for so long is because this is a place, even through multiple ownership groups, that, that people have stayed for a long time. I mean, Voos has been here since day one of the Oakland A's. Mickey Morabito has been here. So you have a, gr a core group of people who've worked together for a long time. We understand how things work. And, um, you know, it's important to how, you know, how we operate. At the same time, you want to be sure you don't sort of fall into patterns and don't take new ideas. And, and we've had people come in on, you know, Dan Kantrovitz is back now as assistant GM. We brought in Rob Neighborhouse to work on our baseball systems to make sure we're up to date on everything technology-wise. So um, it's, I think it's a unique place as far as the 30 teams go where you've got all these people who are lifetime A's um, and we're still able to sort of stay you know, up with, with current, you know, trends and current ways of thinking. How do you do that? Because is it a, is it a cliche or a generalization to say, well, this is the Moneyball team. I mean, we read the book and saw the movie, but how do organizations, how do you evolve as an organization to kind of keep up with what's going on in the game? Well, particularly in our situation where, you know, we, we, much has been made of our payroll and our need to compete with teams spending a lot more money. I mean, we, we have to evolve. I mean, if we were doing things now the exact same way we did them when that book was written, uh, we'd be so far behind the curve. And, and we've had to pick things over the last 15 years um, to focus on and different kinds of players to go with and different ways to spend our money. I mean, the, the CBA has changed also so that you can only allocate so much money to acquiring amateur players, either domestically or internationally. Um, it's, it's changed where you spend your major league money and how you, you know, put a team together. I mean, we've, we've, we've made a lot of decisions based on platoons and part-time players that we weren't doing back in 2000, 2002. So those things have changed. Um, and we, we just, you know, without sort of revealing the special sauce, I mean, we've, we've had to pick different spots over the years to really focus on. I look back over the history of the game and think of some of the great GMs or the names that I think of, uh, going back to Buzzy Bavese with the Dodgers and Bing Devine with the Cardinals and George Weiss with the Yankees, and then fast forward to someone like Pat Gillick, who's in the Hall of Fame. Um, who's, who's on the David Forst, Mount Rushmore of GMs and, and front office executives in baseball? Wow, well, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I have to say, before I got in to, to working in baseball, I don't know that I spent a lot of time sort of focusing on front offices. I mean, growing up in L.A. as a Dodgers fan, I, I knew who the general manager was. I mean, I knew who Al Campanis was and then, um, and then uh, you know, who was running teams. But there wasn't a focus on it the way there is. I, I get 12-year-old kids telling me now, oh, I, I want to be a GM, and I, 
that was never on my radar. I, I wanted to play. <laughs> I, I wish I'd been able to play longer. But, um, you know, obviously, since I started working, you know, I, you pay attention every day to how other people do their jobs. You know, Billy has been kind of the, you know, the landmark for me, watching him do the job. Um, and because of that, I've watched S Sandy Alderson. I mean, A's fans obviously got to see Sandy for a long time and watch him in San Diego and watch him now in New York and how – how he just sort of epitomizes leadership. And, and, you know, I know so many of the people who've worked under him over the years and really trying to study the way that he allows people to do their jobs. Um, you know, that said, I have a, a group now, a peer group now of people um, who I'm close with who I can sort of pick brains of. I mean, I, to some extent, I watched Paul go down to L.A. And, and saw what happened to him there and tried to learn from that. Um, you know, Rick Hahn in Chicago is a close friend, and he had a similar relationship with Kenny Williams as I have with Billy. So I've tried to learn from Rick and how that works. Um, but, they, you know, I really do try and, you know, I watch interviews. I listen to, to the way other GMs speak. I try and learn what, from a leadership and, a, and just a team management standpoint, really works. Um, I will say, you know, Brian Cashman in New York, who's been in that job for a long time, and is in a very different situation from us as far as how they put their team together and the market and whatever. Um, but I don't think Brian gets enough credit for how difficult that situation is, dealing with the media, dealing with ownership. Uh, and I've always respected Brian. I've tried to take as many opportunities as I could to, to talk with him when we're together at the GM meetings and just kind of understand how he sort of goes about day to day because it's it's an incredibly difficult job say what you want about having 200 plus million dollars to work with yeah. what he does just from a management standpoint is really hard so brian's one of the guys that i've really tried to, to take bits and pieces from i'm glad you mentioned sandy because he was the gm when i joined the a's 21 seasons ago and then of course became the president of the team when billy became the gm and to me sandy was the kind of guy that he was a motivator he was someone you wanted to work for. Mm. And so I imagine you've taken some of that because you've got a pretty big staff that I think would be looking to you and Billy um, for leadership in the day-to-day -day operation. Without a doubt. And look, the public part of these jobs is the 25-man roster and how that team performs, and that's what fans focus on. But the day-to-day -day stuff is managing people. I mean, we have uh, you know, scouting and player development staffs in the hundreds of, of people that, you know, ultimately I don't manage all of them day to day, but I oversee Eric and Keith and Ted Polakowski, all of their groups, and those guys sort of look to me and Billy for some direction. So, you know, when you talk about Sandy and his management style, I, I wasn't lucky enough to, to work with Sandy side by side, but very few days go by without Billy mentioning something that he either learned from Sandy or you know, he does something a certain way because Sandy did it that way. So his presence is sort of always here. And, and as we talked about earlier, there are so many people still in the organization who did work under Sandy and who learned how to do their jobs, you know, a certain way. And, and you can't help but want to sort of replicate the success that he had. Let's talk about your ball club a little bit. And I'm sure in putting the team together, it started last year as you evaluated a team that struggled and lost 94 games. As you looked at that team and began to try to put the pieces together for this year's team, what really stood out that you wanted to rectify? Well, unfortunately, we were, you know, as of middle July last year, starting to look forward to 2016, which is never a position you want to be in. And, and luckily for us, we haven't had to do that very often. But clearly the way, you know, our season was sabotaged early on in April and May by by a injuries, you know, starting with Sean and then Zobrist in April, and then the bullpen. And there's nothing more demoralizing to a 
club uh, a club that's trying to compete than losing late games and having a lead and, and having the bullpen uh, sometimes through no fault of their own blow it and and it just happened night after night in May and you lose one run games and um, you know hopefully you learn a lot from that experience obviously if you look at what we did in October and November the bullpen was a priority for us and and we knew first we knew we had to keep Sean healthy I mean that's that's critical it was you know a little over a year ago we found out his shoulder was hurt and tried to kind of patch it together, moving Clippard back and, and moving everybody back into roles that they probably just weren't well-suited for. So you sit down when the off-season starts and say, okay, let's make sure we have depth on top of depth on top of depth in the bullpen. Um, so you go out, you trade for Hendricks early on. You sign Madsen and Axford right around the winter meetings. Um, you, you, again, you keep Sean healthy. Um, you get Zepchinski uh, from the Padres as part of the Pomeranz Alonzo deal. And then all of a sudden you say, okay, there's a unit that we can depend on if, you know, knock on wood, someone goes down. You still have more layers, and particularly guys who've pitched at the end of the game, which we've seen how critical that is for Bob and, and Kurt to have. So the bullpen, you know, bar none, was, was a priority for us. Um, that said, you know, we've obviously made some other moves and, and we recognize continuing to have flexibility as far as the position players go is important. Um, you know, Alonzo fills a role for us against right-handers at first base. It's important. His defense is outstanding, but it also allows Mark Canna to continue to get ABs there. Um, you know, the, the moves we made later on, Coughlin and Chris Davis, were things we talked about early on in the offseason, players that we thought really fit. They just didn't happen to come to fruition until we, basically, until we got down here. You mentioned the bullpen and the four veterans, along with Doolittle, who we assume will be healthy starting the season. And let's say you guys weren't going to go out and spend $120 million and sign someone like Justin Upton. But so if you look at the marketplace and look at what is financially responsible, did you feel, and, and you paid a pretty good amount of money for Ryan Matson, but to be able to add four veteran relievers, does that fit the model of trying to take advantage of what is there in the marketplace, but also doing it in a, I guess, an economically sound way? You and I talked just a little while ago about evolving and about how things have changed from the time Moneyball was written. And, you know, you, have, you, you can't be myopic. You have to sort of see the way the game is going. And five, ten years ago, spending that kind of money on a reliever, you would have said, no way. Like, that's not a good use of our limited funds um, because relief pitching was cheap. I mean, you could go out and put a bull – there were years we put bullpens together for minimum salaries and the Jeff Tams of the world and the Jim Messiers. Those guys overperformed, and they were great. Um, but everybody catches on, and then they start paying it for it. And you look at what the Royals did last year, and they did a great job, you know, making Davis a closer and, and getting Madsen on a one-year deal. But everybody else sort of catches on, and then you have to pay for those things. And, and the reality is it's never been easy for us to spend our money in the free agent market. It's hard to get players here. I mean, there's a list of guys who've gone elsewhere for less money, and we could go on and on about how hard it is for us to attract players to Oakland. Um, so when you're able to find guys like Ryan, like John Axford, who from the beginning of our conversation said, yeah, I really like the idea of being in Oakland, you don't take that for granted, and you figure, hey, we've got this money. Like we've got ownership has given us the ability to be flexible on the payroll. 
if we have to spend on relievers, then so be it, because it's a it's a strong need. And just because it wasn't a good sort of quote unquote value play five years ago doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do now. Again, because you know I don't get to pocket that money if we don't spend <laughs> right. it. I mean, it, it should go into our major league team, and our fans uh, rely on the fact that we're going to put that competitive team. So yeah, I would not have a few years ago thought we would go this way in terms of team building. But it is an area of need, and we think it's a really good unit back there we've put together because we were able to spend on it. And you got a 27-home run hitter from a year ago in Chris Davis to play left field, right-handed hitter, um, under team control for four more years. Were you able to identify the Brewers and look at Milwaukee and their situation and say they're trading or releasing or getting rid of a lot of their veteran players and even a younger player like Davis because they really want to go young and stockpile younger players and draft choices and and feel like we're going to try to pounce when the time is right to go into Milwaukee and, and pursue trying to get someone like Davis? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, they have a new general manager who, you know, early on in the offseason made it clear, like you said, that they were going to go in a certain direction. And, and, you know, it's funny. It seems, at least in the National League, there's as much competition for the number one pick as there is for a division title. So, um, you know, I can say now we had conversations with David Stearns as far back as November 1st, and they traded Adam Lind. We had discussed him. They traded K-Rod. We had discussed him. I mean, all these things, like you said, you know what direction a team is going, and you want to try and be an op- opportunistic. At the same time, David Stearns is a smart guy, and you know he's going to ask for you know for good players if he's trading his major league guys. So it took us a long time to get to a point on Chris Davis where you know there was a deal that worked, and and Stearns, having been with Houston, was very focused on Nottingham from the beginning of the off season, and, and giving up Jake Jacob was not an easy thing for us to do, but Davis is a perfect fit for us. He's under control, like you said, for four years. Every year I've been here, I feel like we've looked for right-handed power. It's just it's something that is so hard to find out there. Um, and in left field, we have the perfect spot for Chris. And and he doesn't you know he doesn't have a right-left split. He's out there every day. Um, you know a lot has been said and written about his defense, but the reality is the, the guy plays a, a good major league left field. So uh, I really think he's he was an important guy for us as the offseason developed. You led me into a question, David, about catching and Nottingham. I likely would be a couple of years away, right. so wouldn't have been in the plans for this year on the big league team, but. You only have two catchers on the 40-man roster in Stephen Vogt and Josh Fegley. Mm-hmm. If something were to happen to one of those guys, um, who's next in line on the depth okay. chart? That's, that's the uh, $64,000 question. Um, I mean, unfortunately, we saw a little bit last September, like how precious that position and that depth is. I mean, Carson Blair got forced into duty in September, probably a little bit before he was ready. We had to bring Brian Anderson back from home for the last 10 days just to get through the season. So, um, you know, it doesn't make us unique amongst the 30 teams to say we don't have enough catching depth because nobody does. And as soon as, you know, as soon as you trade in Nottingham, you spend the next two or three years wondering, okay, who's next in line, exactly like you said. So, uh, I mean, I will say Carson's got a full year under his belt at Double A AA and Triple A with with some major experience. He should continue to develop. He's only 26 years old. Uh, Matt McBride, who's in camp, is an interesting guy too. A, a veteran who's bounced around the minor leagues, has not caught a lot, but has has hit everywhere he's been, and he's worked really hard over the last 10 days with Marcus and uh, you know some of the, the guys on the staff, and and presents an interesting option for us at catcher if, if, God forbid, something should happen to Steven <laughs> and to, to Josh. 
continuing with the depth theme, I guess, if you, I don't want to suppose that I know the starting five when the season begins, but just for the sake of discussion, mm-hmm. you have Sonny Gray and Rich Hill and okay. Jesse Hahn, um, assuming that he's healthy, mm-hmm. and Kendall Graveman and Chris Bassett. Okay, yeah. beyond those five guys, then looking at the starting rotation, who would be next in line? Well, I mean, Jared Parker th- belongs in that conversation, and you mentioned Jesse. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's a lot to ask. I think after what he's been through, it is. And and b- but the fact is, what Jared had done up in, in his career up until getting hurt, like if he's healthy, he absolutely deserves to be in a starting rotation. Um, key part of that being if he's healthy. And the same goes for Jesse, too. I mean, Jesse did not finish the year healthy last year. He rehabbed through the offseason and feels great right now. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him in a game situation out there on the mound, just from a you know from everybody's sort of mental standpoint, just to see him do it. And I know he wants to get out there and do it. So I, I say Han and Parker, you know, if both if they're healthy, are right in there with Graveman and Bassett. So you, you really have six guys who you feel great about health permitting. Uh, we saw a little bit what Felix Dubrant could do last year, um, and, and Felix is, you know, he's really sort of your prototypical fifth starter slash swing guy long man. I mean, he's very valuable to have on the staff because he can move around and do those things and put up, you know, a credible five or six inning start every five days if you need him to do it. Um, you know, after after Felix, Eric Surkamp is someone we like quite a bit. He's here as a non-roster invite, but he's been in the big leagues, you know, over two years. Uh, he actually was a guy we tried to acquire last September from the Dodgers when we were looking for starters and just couldn't make it happen. But but Eric deserves a legitimate shot, and we'll get a chance to pitch the first game of the Cactus League down here uh, so he can sort of start showing off. And then, uh, you know, the sort of the wild card everybody's talking about is Sean Manaya, and, and we talked about how our 2016 planning really began last July. And when we made the Zobris trade with Kansas City, Sean was absolutely a guy that we – expected would be on this team at some point within say 12 months or 18 but sometime in 2016-17 impact our team and once he got here from the Royals did nothing to dissuade us of the thought that he could help us soon so he's gotten a lot of attention here in spring training because of his prospect status and because of his hair but the fact is um, he's you know he's done nearly everything you need to put him on the radar he'll need some time in AAA and if everything goes perfectly over the next four weeks which it never does but if it does he starts here in AAA and, and continues to pitch well and we think has a chance to be you know, a, a middle or top of the rotation guy very soon if he goes down there and dominates for a month or six weeks he could be here yeah he could he, he could force your hand that's what we've always said about prospects is they need to force your hand to get here. That's the best case scenario. I mean, years ago, we had to put Brett Anderson and Trevor Cahill on the opening day roster way before they were ready. Um, and we had injuries that spring, and just there was no way to avoid it. And look, Brett and Trevor handled themselves fine, but probably would have been better off with some more AAA time. Um, but yeah, in the case of a prospect like Sean, you want him to force your hand. He pitches so well, you say, okay, we have to find a way to make room for him. Um, now, we've talked about all these guys, and the one guy we have not mentioned is Henderson Alvarez, who is a little bit off the radar right now just because none of us expect him to pitch until May. Um, but let's not overlook that addition of a guy who was an all-star in 2014, 
who by all accounts has a chance to be, you know, right up there with Sonny as, as a one-two in, in a really good rotation. And everything's gone great with Henderson. He threw off the mound already. He's, he will definitely be rehabbing in, you know, minor league games in April. And, and sometime in May, he's going to add a really, you know, powerful punch to that rotation. I imagine there have been times during your 17 seasons with the A's where you've looked at the minor league system or the players who are considered to be the best prospects, and you've said, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe that's not that great. I'm a little concerned about that. Now you've got Chapman and Barreto and Nunez and Pinder and Munoz and Richie Martin and the rest of the guys. Joey Wendell had a nice year last year, and you know, I'm forgetting two or three, I'm sure, but are you as excited – to look at that crop as it as the the kind of buzz is building around these young players. Yeah, it's nice that they're they're getting some attention, and you know the attention also should be placed on the player development staff. And you mentioned Keith Lippman earlier, but uh, those guys they sort of toil in anonymity and and don't get don't get the accolades they deserve. But yeah, I really am excited about that group and all the guys you mentioned, and like you said, others we've we've sort of forgotten about. Um, that the minor league system is a cyclical thing, and we've seen over the years how there are times you need to use those guys, and they graduate to the major leagues, and it leaves a little bit of a void, and it's incumbent upon Eric Kubota and his staff and the international guys to kind of refuel, and, and we're at that point now where between the draft, the international signings, trades. Uh, particularly last year's deadline, we're at, back at a point now where we do feel really good about that group. And, and, and the nice thing is, and Billy mentioned this the other day, the majority of them are at either double A or above. And once they're there, they're legitimate options for you. And, you, know, you could have all these prospects in A-ball and the Midwest League and the California League and performing, and that's taking anything away from that, but it's a long way from there to Oakland. Um, but as soon as you perform at double A, um, and particularly, obviously, if you get to Nashville and do it, you you are legitimately close to Oakland. And, and those guys, um, you know, Matt Olson, Chad Pinder was Texas player, of the Texas League Player of the Year. Manias pitched in Double A. Overton's pitched in Double A. Nunez played well in Midland last year. Those guys have done it at higher levels, and they're here in camp as actual options for Bob at some point, and for him and the big league staff to get to see them, get to know them. So then if we do call them up, it's, you're not introducing an alien to our clubhouse. You say, hey, I remember this guy from spring training. I know what he can do. I know what makes him tick, and immediately Bob can put him in a good situation. Glad you mentioned Olsen, because that was one name that I overlooked. Um, chemistry, a lot was made of it. Yeah. How much did you make of it? How much did it play a part in building the team for this year? Chemistry is always a chicken and egg thing. I mean, you, you rarely see a winning team that people say, well, it has horrible chemistry. These guys hate each other. Uh, at the same time, losing teams almost never get along and everything's – so it, it's – you know, we felt like the mix last year in spring training was an important thing to focus on. Bob did a lot of stuff while we were here in Arizona to, to work on it. And then we got off to a bad start and things snowballed and, and through no one's fault – you know, things just don't go well when you have a losing environment, unfortunately. But uh, that said, it's something we talked a lot about in September, October. It's important to Bob, which means it's important to us. And, and he's the one who has to be around these 25 guys all the time. I mean, Billy and I uh, have a little separation because we're not in the clubhouse, but, but we get a lot of feedback from Bob on how things work. So uh, it was something we talked about when we went out and made either trades or free agent signings. It's something that we researched. And 
a lot of the guys we've already mentioned, particularly guys like Madsen and Axford, who had sterling reputations from where they were as veteran guys who've been in winning situations and, and who could be you know, good additions for us. That, that was critical to some of the things we did. I'll close with this, too, because speaking of chemistry, I think there was a kind of under-the-radar move that you made on the coaching staff that I think is really going to help from that standpoint, and that's bringing Mark Kotze back to the green and gold. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have Mark here. I mean, personally, I, I, I love Mark. I've, I've had a relationship with him ever since he left here. Um, you know, heard all, you know, heard about his kids growing up. I, personally, I love having him here. As far as the staff goes, I agree with you that he's a, he's a really invaluable piece, and um, you know, and you I, have Wash back too. Yeah, and I don't. I, I want to sort of address the whole staff. I talked to Mark probably back in November when you know this all came up and, and the possibility, and and found myself at that time selling him on the the group as a whole. Um, and we've you know we've moved through a lot of coaches over the years, uh, a lot of them you know, in a good way because they've been promoted other places, you know, Chip left to manage, Todd Steverson left, he's with the White Sox, their hitting coach. We've we've lost a lot of coaches for good reasons, the same way we originally lost Wash when he left to go manage the, the Rangers. But fact is, the group we have now uh, with Cots on the bench, with Wash here for a full season, you know, it's hard to imagine an A staff without Kurt. I mean, Kurt has been here um, other than the one year he abandoned us for the Red Sox. Um, you know, he's such sort of a staple of our, our staff. And then some of the, the newer blood, I call with Emo and, and Darren Bush and Marcus Jensen, guys who came through our system in sort of our, our lifetime A's, which is always nice to have. You really have as good a mix as I can remember. And, and to have Cots on the bench and have his energy and, and the history he has with our organization, I think it's going to be great for Bob. I think our players are really going to benefit from him. And the fact is, the guy knows a ton about the game. He's done so many things. He, he was a star. He finished his career as a role player. He then spent a year as a hitting coach. He's done all these things and all that experience he brings. And, and I'm really excited about the staff. I know Bob is, too. David, I really appreciate the insight today. And this is big. I mean, you're our first guest on our podcast. So um, a lot of fun and wish you nothing but the best. Thanks, Ken. It's, it's going to be a fun year. I'm really looking forward to it. All right. And we'll broadcast uh, nine games down here in the Cactus League. As usual, every weekend game will be on. And we'll also broadcast the uh, Monday night game on the 14th, the A's against the Giants over here in Mesa. For now, from the Cactus League, this is Ken Cora. <laughs> Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.